Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's most notorious crimes and criminals. We are on episode eight and I've got a bit of an interesting story to tell you today. One that's a little bit of fact, probably mixed with a little bit of fiction. I'm your host Lizzie and today I'm bringing you the story of John Liver Eating Johnson. So with a name like that, you know this is going to be one wild story. It can be challenging to distinguish myth from fact when we're drawing from the murky well of history. And that's the case with today's tale of the famed American mountain man, John Johnston. He was undoubtedly known by several names during his life, but two of the most well-known were Crow Killer and Liver Eating Johnson. He's said to have acquired these names because of his frequent killing of Crow Indians and then cutting out and eating their livers as a kind of symbolic retaliation. His personal conflict with the Crow tribe was to exact revenge on the Crow warriors who murdered his wife in 1847. Bit of a disclaimer before we get started, a lot of the details that we know about Johnson come through written histories and notebooks uh, of historians, as well as directly from the accounts or stories of other mountain men. Johnson's exploits have been passed down mostly through oral history. A few true facts have likely made their way into what are very entertaining tales and legends that have more than likely been embellished throughout the years. Even his own name is often disputed. We think that Johnson was actually born John Garrison in 1824 in Little York, New Jersey, to Isaac Garrison and Eliza Mettler, but little is actually known about his early life. What we do know is that he leaves home at the beginning of the American-Mexican War to enlist in the Navy. His career in the Navy is very short-lived because he strikes an officer, There are differing accounts as to why he hits this officer, but afterwards we do know he deserts the Navy and changes his name to John Johnston. He changes his name probably in part to ensure that if anyone is looking for him, they wouldn't be able to find him. He's also going to move to Montana far away from anyone who would know him. Although he likely probably stood out in the crowd, uh, he's rumored to have been around six feet tall, weighing approximately 260 pounds with very little body fat. So not probably the average person you're coming across at the local saloon. Now, according to Alan Bellows for damninteresting.com, he has a man named Old John Hatcher who acts as his guide. So Johnston goes out west to become a hunter and a fur trapper. And Hatcher is a well-known and seasoned mountaineer. And he takes Johnston to his cabin along the Little Snake River in northern Colorado. And it's here that he instructs Johnston in trapping, hunting, and survival techniques that are necessary for a mountain man to live and prosper in this area. Johnston immediately picks up the skills and proves very useful with his 30 caliber rifle and his Bowie knife. A few years later, after Hatcher gives up his job as a mountaineer, Johnston will take over the cabin uh, and then leaves for Montana's Bitterroot Valley, where a year earlier, a flathead Indian subchief 
traded his daughter to Johnston. It said that after the deal was struck, Johnston left with his new bride to head back to his home on the Little Snake River. Just a bit of context, the Flathead Indian tribe lived in what is now western Montana, but their original homeland included the upper Clark Fork of the Columbia River, as well as the continental divide of the Rocky Mountains. Although all Salish-speaking tribes were referred to as Flathead in early records, head flattening was never practiced by the people known by this name. And it's at this point in my research that I dived deep into the rabbit hole of what actually is head flattening. I'd never heard of it before, so I wanted to find out more, and I found some details I thought other people might also find interesting. So what actually is head flattening? Well, according to Britannica.com, it's the intentional alteration of the human skull's shape and was historically pretty widespread in several societies. Many Native American tribes in North, Central, and South America engaged in the practice of flattening the head, especially before colonization and the arrival of Europeans. One would begin the head flattening process as an infant by securing uh, the baby in a cradle board with a movable cover over the forehead. The pressure of the cover is gently and consistently applied over time, and it causes the child's forehead to elongate, creating a nearly smooth silhouette from the tip of the nose to the crown of the head. An infant's uh, head could also be flattened by being bound with a cloth. So now that we're all familiar with head flattening, we can get back to Johnston and his story. So at this point, he's newly married, and the couple, the couple sorry, is making their way back to Little Snake River. Johnston teaches his wife how to handle a rifle so she can hunt and sustain herself during the winter while he's away. And he had her start teaching him the Salish language of her tribe during the several-week voyage out of respect for her heritage. Early in the fall, when they arrive to the cabin, Johnston spends the rest of the season gathering enough dry supplies for her stay there during the winter while he has to head out uh, and start trapping. But this happy life is about to take a very dramatic turn. When Johnston returns to the cabin in the spring, he finds the remains of his wife. By then, she was just a pile of bones. She had been attacked and killed by a Crow Indian hunting party. Even worse, his unborn child's smaller skull is discovered amongst her bones. When she was killed, she would have been about seven months pregnant. Johnston is blinded by his rage. He vows to seek out and assassinate every Crow tribe member as payback for the murder of his wife. The Northern Rockies, Wyoming, and Montana Plains are soon covered in the scalped bodies of Crow warriors. Each victim's livers have been removed, and it was presumed that Johnson ate them. To the crows who believed that the liver was necessary for gaining passage into the afterlife, this would have been regarded as an act of blasphemy. So Johnson is not only ending the person's life, but simultaneously denying them a chance in an afterlife, and nothing could have been considered crueler. Johnston's continued vengeance killings are eventually discovered by other mountain men and Indians, and he quickly earns the nickname Liver Eating Johnson, which has removed the T in Johnston. He engages in a lone struggle against the entire Crow tribe, and no Crow warrior is immune from his wrath. 
This is how he also becomes known as the Crow Killer. If you're unfamiliar with the uh, Crow tribe, Crow oral history claims that the Crow nation migrated from the east. They call themselves the Apsaluke, or children of the large-beaked bird. Their homelands were a wide region that included portions of modern-day South Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana. The Mountain Crow, the River Crow, and the Kicked in the Bellies were the three political branches of the Crow. The Crow Nation's current population and government are located in south-central Montana, bordered by Wyoming on the south with its northwestern boundary about 10 miles from Billings. So after gaining the uh, moniker of Crow Killer, Johnston will uh, continue his murder spree for years unabated. However, one winter, as Johnson was traveling more than 500 miles to see his flathead relatives, he's ambushed by some Blackfoot warriors who wanted to give him up to the crow in exchange for a substantial payment. Johnson is overtaken by the Blackfoot warriors who then imprison him and bind him with leather straps in a tent in order to contain him. However, the story goes that Johnson manages to chew his way through these leather straps and escapes the tent. He then confronts the guard outside and punches him in the nose before he even has a moment to react. Johnson then steals the guard's knife and uses it to saw off one of his legs at the hip. After that, he is able to fight his way out of the Blackfoot camp and make his way into the woods with the help of the warrior's dagger and his leg as a weapon. After escaping from the Blackfoot camp, Johnson has to then make his uh, way over 200 miles back to his cabin. And again, rumor has it that during the harsh winter journey home, he not only uses the guard's leg as a weapon, but also as a fuel source. So he eats the guard's leg. Johnson eventually puts an end to his vendetta against the crow and will make peace after nearly 20 years. There are no details on how this peace uh, comes to be, and it is quite surprising given the violent history and murder spree that he has conducted against the crow for years and years. But apparently the peace is so final that he refers to the members of the crow tribe as his brothers from this point on. According to John Kurowski for allthatsinteresting.com, some historians believe that the increasing violence between the tribes may have contributed in some way to their truce. Tribes were uniting and establishing alliances as a result of the looming prospect of war, uh, and they may have just wanted to um, negate the issue with Johnson uh, and, and unite with him so they didn't have that problem on top of the war. It's said that after the truce, uh, Johnson never consumed another human liver. However, he does later in life enlist in the Union Army in St. Louis during the Civil War. He is a sharpshooter and receives an honorable discharge the following year. He then becomes a deputy sheriff in Leadville, Colorado in the 1880s and then a town marshal in Red Lodge, Montana. Johnson is admitted to a veteran's hospital at the age of 77 in December of 1899 and passes away on January 21st of 1900. This would be a logical place for the story to end, but not so fast, because in 1973, 
we have a fairly new teacher in California named Mr. Robinson, who decides he wants to run a different kind of classroom. And you might be asking, what does this have to do with an 1800s murdering mountain man? Well, trust me, I'm, I'm going to get to that. Mr. Robinson is one of those cool teachers who wants to make history come alive. So he decides to begin dressing up as characters throughout U.S. history. And one of his lessons is on liver eating Johnson. And Mr. Robinson ends his history lesson uh, telling his students about Johnson's passing and the fact that he's buried at a cemetery for veterans near what is now a major freeway in Los Angeles. And the 25 students in Mr. Robinson's class are furious when they learn this. They believe it's an injustice and that he should have been buried in Wyoming. So the class decides they're actually going to try and do something about this. They begin a campaign to have Johnson's bones excavated and reburied. And this campaign lasts the remainder of their academic year. It reaches the top echelons of the U.S. State Department and is covered by major media outlets across the country. In the end, their campaign is successful, and the students plan a ceremony for the disinternment and a reinternment of Liver Eating Johnson. And actually, at the reinternment, actor Robert Redford, who portrays a fictionalized version of Johnson in the film Jeremiah Johnson, serves as a pallbearer for Johnson's body. So Liver Eating Johnson remains in Cody, Wyoming, where he belongs in the Wild West. Now remember, only some of what I've told you can actually be verified, and many of the tales of liver-eating Johnson have been embellished from years of repeating. So what's true and what's not? I'll let you decide. But if you're looking for a movie recommendation, you should check out Jeremiah Johnson by Sidney Pollack, starring Robert Redford. Although the movie does follow the mountain man's life fairly accurately, it doesn't include any liver-eating. And on that note, it brings us to the end of episode eight and the life and crimes of liver eating Johnson. One of our shorter episodes for sure, but um, there wasn't as much information online about Johnson, but we still thought it was definitely a story worth telling. So please rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, If you want to reach out, give us any feedback, or maybe you have a case suggestion, you can reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Instagram at uh, just historicaltruecrimepod. I hope you join us next week for another dark and twisty tale from history. We'll see you then.